Amen. Revelation chapter 5 tonight. Revelation 5. As we come to this chapter, we come to a great privilege that God gives us as He unveils for us a time yet future, but one that I believe, as we saw last week, that actually we will be in this moment one day. And that one day, I believe when we are in this moment, we will remember this Tuesday night Bible study. And we'll be going, I remember learning about this, and now I'm here. I'm in it. I'm part of what is taking place here in Revelation chapter 5. Recall from last week that Revelation chapter 4 was all about John being mesmerized, if you will, by the throne of God. And he's fixated on the throne and everything surrounding the throne and the worship of the one on the throne. And sort of chapter 5 now is a continuation of that. As he, as he continues to view the throne, he sees something else that catches his eye as well. Tonight, what makes this chapter so, I guess, special and distinctive, even in Revelation, is this. This chapter reminds us that in God's plan, there has always been the intent on God's part to regain paradise. That that paradise, if you will, was lost in the Garden of Eden, And now God is going to regain paradise. That God is going to one day reclaim this world that He created for Himself. And that one day, all the inhabitants that are left on the earth are going to worship Him and acknowledge Him as He rightfully deserves. God is going to set the record straight. God is going to vindicate His servants. God is going to judge in righteousness and justice. And and all of this is going to begin unfolding after what takes place in Revelation chapter 5. What we are going to be introduced to tonight is really symbolic or uh, an emblem of the title deed of planet Earth. I want you to remember that. Because again, remember, when God created the earth and created the world, He had a purpose and intent for it and for all of creation, for mankind as well. But when man fell, Satan swooped in, if you will, and and then assumed leadership, if you will, in this world. Doesn't mean God's not in control. We obviously know that from the fact that He's always been on the throne, always will be on the throne. But even the Scriptures teach, even Jesus Himself says in John chapter 12 that He refers to Satan as the ruler now of this world. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he refers to Satan, the devil, as the God of this world. That's going to change one day. And and it begins to change, if you will, in Revelation chapter 5. Up to this point in history, God has basically, to a point, let man run the show. You, you You want control? You don't want me to be king? 
You, you don't want to worship me. You don't want to acknowledge me. Have at it and see what happens. And we can see where the earth and the world and humanity is going without God. It reminds us, I shared this yesterday, that when man loses God, he loses himself. When man exterminates God, he exterminates himself. Because you can't believe that we are just here by chance, by some random accident, by some evolutionary process, rather than through uh, the creation of a loving creator. You, you can't believe that once we die, that's it. We're just done. We're just dead. We're exterminated. Know that we're an eternal soul that will exist forever. You can't redefine the truth of God into our own form and somehow push God to the edge and not lose yourself in the process. And so Revelation chapter 5 begins to show us now exactly how God is going to do that. But notice what John says. He says, Then I saw, again, after the worship of the one on the throne, he says, Then I saw in the right hand, the prominent hand, of the one who was seated on the throne, a scroll, a book. In the Greek word, it's just the word biblion. Back then, it would have been a parchment, a scroll, if you will. And he says it was written on the front and the back. That's significant, you see. There's a lot of information on this parchment. And he says it was sealed or closed up with seven seals. And only one that had the authority to break those seals could ever get in and begin to unfold the catalog of judgments and and the plan of reclamation and redemption of the world that is contained in this unbelievable book that John now sees in the right hand of the one who is on the throne. He says, and then I saw, verse 2, a powerful angel. Not all angels are the same. God created angels just as unique as he did humans. So I like the fact that John says, man, this angel was powerful. I mean, not to diss other angels, they're all powerful, but, but this angel was really powerful. And he says, I saw a powerful angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? The word worthy is an important word. In the Greek language, it's the word axios, A-X-I-O-S. It means one who has merit, one who who has the qualifications, if you will. One who has the weight, the character, the integrity. And this angel approaches the one who is seated on the throne with the title deed to the planet Earth and God's plan for reclaiming the earth as His own and setting the record straight and turning the earth back to worship Him and turning creation around and restoration of creation and all that. Paradise regained. Utopia once again on earth. But it's going to take someone who's worthy to open this 
and in a sense to see this plan through. Who's qualified? Who has the weight? Who has the merit? Who has the character? Not only to be able to open the scroll, but to also break the seals, to loosen it, to undo it, and begin to unfold the rest of the plan of God for the earth. Notice verse 3. John is condensing a lot here, but basically a universal search goes out for one who's worthy. And John comes back and he says, after this universal search, absolutely no one in heaven, no one on earth, no one even under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. The next key word is the word able. Whoever this is not only has to be worthy, they have to be able. Because it's not just one who's qualified and has the weight and the character who is going to be able to open this scroll and loose the seals. It is one who's going to be able to carry out and see to its completion and fulfillment everything that's contained in this book. That means it's got to be somebody who has power, someone who's capable, someone who has the resources to be able to see all this come to pass and in a sense be able to carry out everything that's contained in there. Worthy and able. And no one was found. So notice the reaction of John in verse 4. I began weeping bitterly. I began literally to sob, audible sobs. I was in pain. I was grieving and weeping and mourning so much because no one was found in heaven, on earth, under the earth, who could even open the scroll and look into it and break its seal. And John knew what that meant. John knew that that meant if no one was found, then nothing would ever change. Nothing would ever be reclaimed. Nothing would ever be restored. The plan of God would never be fulfilled and completed. There would be no paradise regained. There would be no utopia ever again. There would be no vindication. Satan would not be put down once and for all. Evil would not be judged once and for all. Righteousness and those who were servants of God would not get their due rewards. You can only imagine what was going through John's mind as he thought, is there no one? that's going to be able to do this, to see this through to the end. Then, verse 5, one of the elders, these divine administrators ruling alongside of God, said to me, stop weeping. Literally, no more weeping. Here's why. He says, look. It's really important that we know where to look. That we know where to look and 
and who to look to and what to behold and what to see. Because if we get our eyes in the wrong place, that's not good. We always need to keep as Christians, as followers of God, our eyes in the right place. Even the writer of Hebrews encourages us as believers always to be looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So he's like, look. He says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. Thus he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Let's go and examine this a little bit. First of all, he says, the one he's describing, who's worthy and able, is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The strong and mighty one of Judah. By the way, the name Judah, the tribe of Judah, it means he shall be praised, is what Judah means. Very interesting in this context. But that's what the Old Testament predicted. That the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ, would come out of the tribe of Judah. And He is referred to as the Lion. Notice also, He says, He's also in the line of David, to even be more specific. He's an ancestor of David. He's in the Davidic line. He's in the Davidic dynasty. He meets all the qualifications to be able to rule on the throne of David, just as the Old Testament predicted. By the way, a side note here that I think would might be of interest to some of you. To show how precise God is on His timing and why He does some of the things that maybe sometimes we go, why then? Why was Jesus born when he was? Why did he have to be born when he was? Well, one major reason is for this reason. God wanted to make sure that when Jesus was born, that there could be a legitimate trace of his ancestry back through the line of David so that people could see that he fulfilled the prophecies that were predicted in the Old Testament. If Jesus would have been born after A.D. 70, when Titus the Roman Emperor went into Jerusalem and destroyed not only the temple, but destroyed all of the the, uh, ancestral tablets and records. See, that's why after A.D. 70, Jewish people really have lost track as to what tribe they are from. Today, no Jewish person could accurately tell you what tribe they're from because after A.D. 70, all those records were cut off. But up until A.D. 70, those records still existed. And Jesus could legitimately, in a sense, show his papers to the Jewish people and say, here's my lineage, here's my ancestry. I fulfill the line of David. But notice also John calls him the root of David. He does that because he wants to describe something that springs up from that which appears dead. That's what the root means. In other words, for centuries, the line of David, the kingly rule of David, has appeared dead. There's no life there to David's throne and his 
kingdom, if you will, to his ancestry. But this lion is the root. And that root is going to live again. And that root of David's uh, kingdom is going to spring up again in the form of this lion from the tribe of Judah. Appears dead now, but is not dead permanently. And notice John says he has conquered. He has been victorious. He has overcome. It's not like there's any question as to who's already won the battle. The battle was already won. When Jesus said, it is finished, that was it. See, that's why I remind Christians, we don't fight for victory as Christians. We fight from victory. The victory has already been won. Jesus already won the victory. He's already conquered, you see. We need to live in that. That's why Jesus was saying to his churches in Revelation 2 and 3, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers. How can Jesus expect me to conquer and overcome? Because he's already won the victory. He wants me to live in his victory, in his power, and in his strength. He's conquered. Thus, he can open the scroll and its seals. Then I saw, standing in the middle of the throne, and of the four living creatures, and in the middle of the elders, a lamb. A lamb. Notice that this lion of Judah now appears as a little sheep. A little lamb. And not only that, but he says, this lamb appeared to have been killed By the way, that word killed means slaughtered, butchered. What John is going to learn tonight in this vision and revelation from God is what God wants all of us to learn through our understanding of who Jesus is and our relationship with him and following his example. And we're going to talk about that on Sunday morning out of 1 Peter. And that is this. I want you to listen to this principle because it's illustrated in the lamb who was killed but now has conquered. And that is this principle. Victory through sacrifice. That's an important principle for us as Christians to remember. Victory, from God's perspective, comes through sacrifice. It's a totally... It doesn't make sense. It it, it goes against everything as humans in our fallen nature we think or want or desire or even are willing to do. Because we want victory but we don't want sacrifice. And God is saying through Jesus to all of us down through history, you want victory? Got to have sacrifice. Victory comes through sacrifice. No other way. And then he says this. He says this lamb had seven horns. Seven, again, the number of completeness. 
Horns were a symbol in the Bible even of power. A horn on an animal was used to inflict damage in battle and combat. It was a, it was a sign of power. And so basically he's saying, even though this lamb is little, this lamb is also the lion of Judah, and this lamb has complete power. And then he says, this lamb also has complete knowledge and complete intelligence. He has seven eyes, speaks of his omniscience, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, before we move into verse 7, I want to make a really important point here of why, again, it's so important that Christians get into the book of Revelation, understand it, grasp it, and understand what the book really is all about. It is not about prophecy. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the unveiling, the uncovering of who He is, the glorified Son of God, who now is in heaven. And when we get to understand who Jesus is, we must always have a balanced view of Jesus. And the only way you and I even get a balanced view of Jesus as Christians is through our Bible. And it's the Bible that says we must always remember that the Lamb is also the Lion. The Lamb is also the Lion. You cannot separate the two. Any more than someone tries to separate uh, Jesus' deity and his humanity, no, he was 100% deity, he's also 100% humanity, you cannot take any of those away from him. Same thing in his character. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, and when he came the first time, he came in humility, he came in a human body, he came to surrender. That's what lambs do. Lambs surrender. We're going to talk about that Sunday. But lions don't surrender. Lions conquer. Lions overcome. And the one who came the first time as the lamb is coming the second time as the lion. And that's what the Bible wants to try to get us to remind ourselves of. Same person, Jesus. He was the lamb. And in a sense, he still is and always will be the lamb because he will bear the scars and will be forever adored and praised and worshipped for what he did when he came to earth and died on the cross. But he will also always be adored, appreciated, and worshipped for being the Lion of Judah. The one who was able to conquer. The one who was worthy and able to take the scroll from the one seated on the throne and begin to open the seals and reclaim this earth for himself and begin to set down his kingdom once and for all on this earth and be worshipped on earth as he always is in heaven. Verse 7, Then he came and took the scroll He claimed it. He procured it for himself from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, 
the four living creatures, these supernatural beings that we were introduced to last week, and the 24 elders who I believe represent the church, threw themselves to the ground before the Lamb. These words not only mean that they fell prostrate, it meant they were overcome. One day, if we've never been overcome by God in our lives, one day we'll be overcome when we're in His presence. That's one of the things, though, that worship of God should do for us as Christians, especially daily worship, is to bring us not only into the presence of God, but begin to create such an appreciation for who God is that literally we are overwhelmed and overcome by Him and who He is and what He's done and what He's going to do. That really the only thing we can do is sort of fall down and humble ourselves before Him and as His sheep surrender to Him. Notice also, Each of them had a harp. I believe that you and I as the church will each have a harp. You go, I can't play. You're going to know how to play a harp in heaven. By the way, I'm getting off a little bit here, but since we're talking about Revelation being a book of worship, I think it's quite interesting that in the Old Testament, there's a couple of different instruments that are repeated throughout the Old Testament that's used in the worship of God. There's the lyre, there's the harp, and there's cymbals. And as I've studied these, I think that you can correspond these even into our modern day where the lyre would sort of be our modern day uh, guitar. The harp would be more of the modern day keyboard. And obviously the cymbals would be our modern day percussion instruments. But why the significance of the harp here? Why are the church, why are the saints of God playing harps? If you study the Old Testament, harps were always associated with prophecy and the promises of God. And that's exactly what we see happening here. This is prophecy. These are the promises of God that He's giving. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. And there was something that God always associated with that He would always make sure that where there were prophets and prophecies, there were harps around. I don't understand all of it, but I know that there is a connection there. And there's a connection here in Revelation chapter 5 as well. Not only a harp, but also these golden bowls full of incense. Incense, this this fragrance that as it's burned, it goes upward. And this is a great picture that he goes on to say that these golden bowls that are full of incense literally are the prayers of God's people that are ascending up literally into the nostrils of God as a sweet-smelling fragrance. I want you to think about that, believer, as you think about your prayers 
That the Bible reminds us that our prayers don't just hit any ceiling and bounce down. That literally our prayers go up and are collected in these golden bowls in heaven. And they are kept there as this, as this incense that continually flows up into the nostrils of God. Because one of the things about prayer is that prayer is an act of faith. Anytime we pray, we're pretty much admitting, God, I I believe that you exist. I, I believe you hear me. I don't believe this is a waste of my time. And so I'm offering prayer to you. Think about it. The prayers of God's people down through the ages have all been collected in heaven. And I hope that this will be a motivation for you to pray, to keep on praying, to start praying, to realize that prayer is important to God and it forms this incense that goes up before Him in heaven. And think about all the prayers, especially of what we're seeing here in Revelation 5, of Christians even, say, who were martyred and killed for their faith. And how many Christians over the years, down through the centuries, prayed for, God, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, vindicate yourself. God, vindicate us who serve you and who love you. God, make things right. God, bring justice on the earth. God, shut the devil up once and for all. Put away evil and rebellion once and for all. You think about all the prayers of all the saints of all time and they are collected in these bowls that are now filling up heaven as incense. And he says, verse 9, they were singing, singing. They were singing a new song. Again, nothing wrong with old song. But God always wants us as His children to always be coming up with new, fresh songs because He always wants our walk and our relationship with Him to be current. He doesn't want us to always live in the past. He wants us to appreciate the past and always be able to talk about the past and reminisce and be mindful of the past and even sing songs from the past. But he always wants us to be writing and inventing and and singing and being introduced to new, fresh songs as well. Because it's what keeps our relationship fresh and current, you see. And here is the words of this song that one day you and I will sing in heaven similar to the one we sang tonight. You are worthy. Again, you have the weight. You have the merit. You have the qualifications. You have the character. You have the integrity to take the scroll and to open its seals. And here's one of the reasons why they say, because then they go on. Because... You were killed. You were slaughtered. You were butchered. And at the cost of your own blood, you have purchased for God persons from every tribe, language, people, and nation. See, one of the reasons why 
Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the Lion of Judah is being worshipped in heaven now and will be one day is not just because he was the creator of the universe, we talked about last week in chapter 4, but because he is the Redeemer. He's the one who paid the price so that you and I could have a relationship with his own blood. He came into the marketplace of earth. He loved us enough that he was willing to put down his own blood and he paid for us in full so that we could have a relationship. That's why he's worshipped. Not just because he created us, but because he paid the price for us. He purchased us with his own blood. He purchased us out of the slave market so that we no longer had to serve sin, but that we could be free and could be delivered out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I love this. John recognizes in this vision and revelation that there are people there in heaven, first of all, from every tribe. It means every nationality. Every language, it means every distinctive dialect that's spoken on earth. Every people, it means every population center. And nation means every people group. In other words, there will be people represented in heaven from all over the earth. Everywhere. That's why I just, people show their ignorance when they say, oh, the Christian faith, it's so narrow, it's so intolerant. They only teach it. There's one way to heaven and it's only through Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's only one way to heaven, but that one way is open to everyone. God so loved the world. And the Bible proves it, that there will be people from all over the planet who are in heaven one day through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's only one way, but anyone can get there. It's not exclusive. And I shared with you a couple weeks ago, if you really want to know what's going on, and you won't hear it on any of our networks or news organizations here in America, there's revivals going on in foreign countries. There are thousands upon thousands of people coming to Christ in China, in Russia, in the Middle East, and all over this world, my friends. God is at work. Because Jesus is coming soon. And then he says, not only this, so not only has this lamb created everything, not only has this lamb at the cost of his own blood purchased us and set us free, oh, he goes even a step further. Here's another reason to worship the lamb. He has appointed us as a kingdom. He wants us to rule and reign beside of him. Wow. He he not only saves us, sets us free, forgives us of our sins, but he wants us to understand we are princes and princesses of God, that we will rule and reign one day with Christ in his kingdom. Then he says, not only that, he's appointed us to be priests. When you think of the word priest, think of two things, access and representation. Priests in the Old Testament, unlike everyone else, had access to God. And he's reminding us as New Testament priests that all of us, unlike in the Old Testament, we all have access to God through the blood of Jesus. And we also have the privilege as priests 
of representing men to God. We can intercede for others on their behalf to God. That's what a priest did. He went to God on behalf of others. And he says, that's another privilege that this lamb has given us. To serve our God and they will reign. We will rule with Christ on the earth. Don't miss those last three words. Because there are people all over the place who don't believe in a literal earthly kingdom anymore. They don't. I believe here once again, as well as in many other places, that the Bible teaches that Jesus' kingdom is literally going to be on the earth for 1,000 years. And we will rule, co-rule, partner, be divine assistants and administrators in the rule of the world. That's our destiny, folks. Should we not praise Him for what we have to look forward to? Now, in the few minutes we have left, look at the rest of the chapter. There again continues to build this crescendo of worship. You know, last week we saw it started with these four supernatural beings who were hovering around the throne, and then they sort of caused the elders and the representatives of the church to fall down and worship Him. And now we're going to see that the angels are going to start getting involved. And pretty soon we're going to see that all of creation, no exceptions, all of creation is one day going to worship the Lamb. Notice what he says. Then I looked, verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels in a circle around the throne, as well as the living creatures and the elders. Their number was 10,000 times 10,000, thousands times thousands. He's simply trying to come up with a way to say they are innumerable. In fact, when this word is used in other places in the New Testament, the English translators usually translate it innumerable or uncountable. And here's one of the reasons why. In the Greek language, the highest number that they had anything to describe was 10,000 because Greeks didn't count to millions and stuff back then. That, wasn't, that was foreign to them. The highest number that they went in their language was 10,000. To them, that that was pretty big. So that's what John is using here. The highest number in the Greek language that he can use to describe the indescribable and the innumerable. More than you can ever imagine, like the stars you would see in the night sky. And he says, all of whom were singing in a, what? A loud voice. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to bother some of you, but please love me anyway. I'm your brother in Christ. Some people complain about things being too loud. And please, you know our hearts here. Nicole and I and our worship team, we're never going to like crank the music up just for cranking the music up. Say, that's not what we're about here. But here's what I am going to warn you about if you say, I don't like things too loud. When you get to heaven and you have to hear an uncountable number of 
angels and the church and the Old Testament saints and everyone who's there in heaven, that when they're singing praises to God, they're not going to be holding back when they get to heaven. And neither are you and neither am I. Everyone's going to be praising Jesus with a loud voice, my friends, because he deserves that kind of worship and praise. Don't get me started. <laughs> Nicole's back there going, amen, Jeff. You just keep going. And here's what they say. Worthy is the lamb who was killed to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and praise. Folks, he's not saying give it to Jesus because somehow he's deficient and he's lacking and he needs us to give him these things. The word give here means to gather tribute. In other words, it's to acknowledge and recognize who and what he already is. He already is wisdom. He already is power. He already is all of these things. But finally, in heaven and on earth one day, he's going to be acknowledged and recognized for who he really is. That's what it means to give him these things. Then I looked. Here it is, verse 13. Every creature. No exceptions, folks. No exceptions. Every creature in heaven, every creature on earth, notice, every creature under the earth, every creature even in the sea, and all of them are going to be singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be praise, honor, glory, and ruling power or dominion endlessly, forever and ever. See, This creation that Paul says to the Romans in Romans 8 that is groaning, that is waiting for the day of redemption, that is waiting to be set free from this curse that has been placed upon it through the entrance of sin, one day creation is going to be able to cut loose and be able to finally praise and worship and acknowledge and recognize the God who created it all. And everything in the universe is finally going to lift up its voice in praise. What a day that will be. You and I are going to be there because we're going to be a part of all this that we're talking about here tonight in Revelation chapter 5. And verse 14, the four supernatural beings were saying, Amen! Let me give you my paraphrase of what that means. It means, let it be, make it happen. That's what they're saying. And the elders, notice, threw themselves again to the ground and worshiped. Notice, they were up, then they were down. Then they were back up, then they were back down. Because how can you not go back down when you're in the presence of one like the Lamb of God? By the way, let me remind you, the word worship here, the very last word of Revelation 5, means to fall upon one's knees as an expression of profound reverence and respect. That's what the word in the Greek language means. To fall upon one's knees as an expression of profound reverence and respect. One day God is going to get the reverence and respect that He deserves. What God hopes for 
is that that kind of reverence and respect would be seen in his church today. And that his church would begin to even, in some small way, begin to worship him now as one day we will worship him in glory. May we leave here tonight echoing the words of Revelation 5 to Jesus. The one who purchased us with his own blood and was butchered and slaughtered so that we could be set free. Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this tremendous chapter. We thank you for this revelation that you instructed John to share with us. God, I pray that it would change our lives, even as your followers. God, we would remember that one day, this is our destiny. This is who we will be. We will be worshiping you endlessly, serving you, serving alongside of you in your kingdom. And God, we don't deserve any of it. It's by your grace and mercy. But God, you always had a plan. And that plan always involved restoring what was broken. Restoring the image of God that we were created in that was marred by sin. And you always had that plan of reclaiming this earth for yourself. And God, beginning next week, we're going to see that plan begin to unfold. God, I pray that as we study the book of Revelation, that it would not only give us an appreciation for our faith and our salvation and what we have in Jesus, but God, that it would make us more motivated, more inspired to get out there as we talked about Sunday and to be energetic witnesses for you to those that don't know you. To share our faith. And at least be willing to, to get out there and no matter how much we're rejected, no matter how much we're laughed at and insulted and verbally abused, that God, we would be willing to share what you've done in our life and maybe see some people come to know you before you come back. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before I let you guys go, could I say a couple things? One, some of you have been asking about maybe further resources for a study in Revelation. I'm going to share one that I think is pretty trustworthy because it's from my Bible professor that I probably learned more Bible from when I was in Bible college and seminary than any other single person that I ever, you know, learned the Word of God from. And about four, 12 years ago, I guess now, he wrote a study on the book of Revelation called Revelation Unlocking the Future. His name is Ed Heinsen, Dr. Ed Heinsen. Uh, if you'd be interested, you can purchase this book through Amazon, through CBD, Christian Book Distributors. Again, it's called Revelation Unlocking the Future by Dr. Ed Heinsen. If you know of somebody that's really interested in the book of Revelation, or you personally would like to, again, do further study or have a good resource for this book, this would be a book that I would highly, highly, highly recommend. Uh, secondly is this. Just this afternoon, late this afternoon, before I got here tonight, 
we have a possibility of, of maybe uh, a piece of property. And so what I would like to do, I haven't even had a chance tomorrow, I'm going to talk to the elders about this tomorrow night. I haven't had a chance to share anything, but all I'm bringing this up for is prayer right now. We're going to run this out and see again if this is an open door or a closed door. But just very late this afternoon before uh, Bible study tonight, there is a piece of property that uh, we became aware of that we think could really be something that, that might work for us as a church. So we're going to talk to the elders about it tomorrow. We're going to do some investigation. I bring it before you all tonight to just ask, please pray. Pray for us as we continue to do this, and we will keep you up to date on where God takes us from here. God bless you guys. Thanks for being here. See you next week.